I mentioned earlier that we are finishing our sermon series that we have called From Death to Life, and we've looked at how from the beginning of time, before time itself, the Lord in his love and providence called and chose uh, us to be his own through Christ. And we've looked at all the different steps along the way of bringing us from death in our sins to life through Christ. And we conclude this week looking at the last blessing that we have, uh, which is our glorification, which we will have when we um, are, are, are resurrected um, and, and brought to face Christ um, and see him in his glory. We will be transformed. And so we're going to look at the implications of that today. Um, so I'm going to look at, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 through 27, and then also 51 to 57. Would you read with me? Paul says this, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. There were people in Corinth who were questioning whether or not there was life after death, whether or not Christ had actually risen from the grave. And so Paul is combating that. For if Christ... Uh, sorry, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. First the first Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God uh, kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And then continuing in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and its truth that is of encouragement to us. We pray now in the preaching of your word, would you move in our hearts through your spirit, open up our eyes and our minds to understand your will for us. 
and bring us face to face with Christ our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Last summer on the show, America's Got Talent, Jane Markuski, I don't know how to pronounce that name, but she goes by another name. Jane walked on stage and captured the hearts of millions of adoring fans. Within two days of her audition performance, the original song that she sang became the top song on iTunes. You might know her by her stage name, Nightbird. And you might recall her captivating story that she shared at the audition of suffering through cancer. Part of the enchantment with her story has to do with her confidence and her resolution that despite her health, she possessed this unwavering hope. Not hope in herself, but hope in her God about whom she also wrote another song entitled, God is on the Bathroom Floor, in which she wrestles with God about the purpose and meaning behind her worsening conditions. Her Christian faith was not private, and many media outlets picked up on this particular part of her story that captured the hearts of so many. Last week, on February 19th, Nightbird died and was immediately united to her loving Savior, Jesus Christ, where she is experiencing far greater joy and happiness and healing now more than she could ever have imagined. Nightbird knew that this world was not the end, that there was hope for her beyond the grave. And it was this confident hope that made her story so attractive to so many. But not everyone has that kind of hope. I posted on Facebook this week a poll on social media asking my followers, do you believe in life after death? If yes, what do you think happens? If no, why not? And a couple responses that I got back. Um, one person said, that no, there's no life after death, but our legacy goes on after us in the memory of those that loved us. And another person commented that, in his opinion, the evidence is clear that there is no life after death, but that there is this endless, eternal cycle of consciousness that, that sort of plays out in some other life to come. What's fascinating about both of these responses and others is that in saying that they didn't believe in any kind of life after death, but that their answers sort of um, held out this lasting hope for something, whether it is their legacy or their conscience or something. They want there to be life after death. I think they, along with us, can repeat what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that if in Christ we have hope for this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We want there to be life after death. And this passage teaches us that there is. There is hope. There is life. That death is not the end. 
We're looking at the doctrine of glorification this morning, that there is life after death, that there is this message of hope. Paul teaches us in this letter that through Christ and in Christ, there is hope. First, there is hope for you. Second, there is hope for this world. And third, there is hope for the people that we love. First, there is hope for you. Second, there is hope for the world. And third, there is hope for the people that we love. Let's look at each of those. First, there is hope for you. Paul says that for those who are in Christ, for those who have trusted in Jesus, there is hope beyond death. And that hope is, is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. He says that death is not the end. This life is not all this there is. There is more to come. And he roots that hope in the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 20. Paul says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By another man has come also the resurrection of the dead. That first man that Paul references is Adam. We've said this before. Paul is saying it again. That if you are from the lineage of Adam, or in other words, if you are a human being, you are going to die. But if you are also now part of the family of God, If now you are united to Jesus and part of his people, then you will live. Adam died, and so you will die. Jesus was raised, and so those in Jesus will also be raised. Because of Jesus, you can have hope for life after death. But what is this life? What is this life to come? In order to understand what Paul is saying about the life to come, you have to know a little bit about what life is like now. When we think about life and being and who are we, some people like to say that our, our, our core identity, our core being is our soul. That our body may fail, but our soul lives on. And so who you are is your soul. Now, other people... Um, like to say, well, the soul, you can't even measure it. How do we know that the soul is even real? All that matters in this world is the body, care for the body. The, the biblical framework for understanding life is actually both of these, that we are a, a soul-body combination, a, a psychosomatic union. We are not just souls without a body, and we're not just bodies without souls, but that life is both of these, soul and body, together. And if that's true of life now, well, then what happens when we die? Scripture teaches us that when we die, our bodies and our soul separate. Our our bodies do see decay. We do bury our bodies in the ground. They see corruption but that our soul, still part of who we are, goes to the presence of God himself and is perfected in his holiness. 
Our bodies see decay, but our soul goes to the Lord. But friends, this too is not the end of the story. Just as death wasn't the end of your soul body, your soul in heaven is not the end of your soul body. Paul says here, just as Christ's body was raised from the dead, so too will your body be raised to life. Our ultimate destination is not just souls in heaven, but it is our soul and body together again, raised up from the grave. And it is there that we will experience this transformation called glorification. Because in that moment, we will behold the image of Christ face to face. Another apostle says that at that time, we will see him in his glory when he appears. And we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We will shine his radiance. We will be glorified in his glory, transformed into his image completely. This is the hope that Paul is telling us. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, so too our bodies will be raised from the dead. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. What does that mean? The first fruits is a, a reference to when a farmer, uh, the beginning of the harvest season, saw the first of the fruit. He would take it and offer it before the Lord as a sacrifice, an offering. And in doing so, he was saying, Lord, I know that you have given me this first fruits, and I'm offering it back to you because I trust that you will bring the rest of the harvest. This is only the beginning, but I trust that you will see to it to the end, that you will bear the fruit of the harvest for me. Jesus is the first with the assurance that those in Christ will indeed come after him. It also symbolized for the farmer that this first fruit of the harvest indicated the, the quality and the health of the harvest that was to come. If the first fruits were, were good, well, then he knew that the rest of the harvest was going to be good. If the first fruits were bad, he worried, is that going to be the rest of my harvest? But Jesus is the first fruits, giving us the assurance that we too will be resurrected, and we will be resurrected like him. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of all of those who are in him. What he looks like is what we will look like. Jesus, you know this, before his death and resurrection, he himself was tempted by sin, yet he did not sin. However, sin remained a daily temptation in his life, but upon his death and resurrection, he has defeated sin and its power. And this will be true of us then too. Yes, sin plays a daily role in our lives. It is an ever-present battle. It clouds our judgment and turns our heart away from the Lord. It captures our desires and turns them inward upon ourself. We cannot get rid of it. And although we are being sanctified by his grace, the Lord has yet to transform us completely. But in our glorification, we will be raised to a new life like Christ. That victory over sin will be ours. Sin will have been defeated in us through the death and resurrection of Christ. So today, let us individually fight those temptations. 
Let us resist sin in our own hearts in light of this assured victory that we have in Christ. Let us press on with confidence that although sin is a present reality, we have this hope that at the end, God will glorify us and remove sin completely. This is his work in our lives. So let us pray to him and ask for his strength that he would grant us that victory even now. There is hope for you. Hope for life after death. Hope for freedom. But Paul says, there's not only hope for you, there's also hope for the world. In verse 24, Paul says this, after the resurrection of our bodies, he says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. In Jesus' first advent, the, the, the advent that we celebrate at Christmas, when he comes in the flesh into our world, we celebrate him coming as a baby, an innocent little child who grows up in the, the back village of Nazareth, He lives a life of poverty and humility. He dies a death alongside criminals. He sort of lives a life of obscurity. But when he comes again, when he returns for his second advent, this crucified king does not come to us as a baby. He comes as the ruling king of creation He comes with justice and righteousness. He comes with the armies of the Lord. He comes to establish his kingdom forevermore. That means he is coming to put an end to all evil and wickedness, that he will bring justice for the oppressed. He will bring righteousness for the hurt. Every evil nation and leader and system of injustice will be destroyed. That is the hope for the world. That is the hope that we need in a world of so much darkness, pain, and suffering. When J.R.R. Tolkien wrote his Lord of the Rings books, he he wrote them in a post-war Britain. And he actually used war throughout his books to um, sort of illustrate this battle this eternal battle between good and evil. These are so popular and um, captivating. And in the movies, in the second movie, The Two Towers, there's a scene, I think, that so perfectly captures this return of our conquering king when all else seems so dark. It's called The Battle of Helm's Deep. When the main characters, they're attempting to defend this citadel. And in the citadel are are men and women and children. They're scared for their lives. There's this approaching army, the army of Saruman. And and they are outnumbered. They don't have the weapons. They don't have the skills. There are young boys taking up arms to fight for their families. 
as the battle goes on, it becomes very clear that they are not going to win the night. They're going to be overtaken. They are too small. They are too weak. And it's in this final desperate act, an attempt to push back the army. They ride out on horses, and as they're going out into the army, they look up the hill to the east, and on the top of the hill comes Gandalf, the wizard, the one who previously we thought had died as a sacrifice to save the fellowship. But he comes riding on a horse, dressed in white clothes, with an army behind them. They rush in and save the day. I mean, it gives me goosebumps even thinking about that. I I do think that this picture It is an analogy of the return of our king, the return of our savior, Jesus, who comes with power and might and justice. I mean, just listen to how the book of Revelation describes this. I think J.R.R. Tolkien had this in mind because in Revelation it says, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is the name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. Friends, our Savior is coming back to this world to set everything right that has gone wrong to establish his kingdom of justice forever. In this new heaven and new earth, the restored creation that the Father has been bringing about, there will be peace. In this place, we read that there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. These things have passed away. The future glory is the hope for the world. This future glory That means that the hope for this world is not in a politician or an administration. The hope for this world is not in social activists or freedom protests. The hope for this world is not in nonprofits or charity organizations. The hope for this world is not in education technology, renewable energy, or ending poverty. These are not the hope for the world. The return of Christ is and his eternal kingdom of justice. That does not mean that we ignore the problems of the world. We don't wait sitting on our hands until that glorious day arrives. No, we are the body of Christ here on earth. We are his hands and his feet. We are to bring about healing for the hurt, justice for the oppressed. How we do that as a church and as individuals, that is a matter of wisdom and discernment. 
And so we should not judge one another in the body of Christ, whether in this church or other churches who have decided to do that their own way. We are to engage the problems of the world, but knowing that the world's hope is in the return of Christ. We know that none of these things, whether whatever good they might do in the lives of our neighbors, be that in Mayfield or Cleveland or around the world, we know that their solution is not the ultimate solution. Their definition of the problem is not the right definition of the problem. But we work for the flourishing of our neighbors with the hope that Christ is going to come again. At the end of the Bible, after these pictures of the great king on the horse, after this vision of this new restored heavens and earth, the last sentence is a prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That should be our prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Set this world right. And so we pray for justice. We pray for the Lord's return. We pray for the eradication of evil. We pray for hearts to be repentant. We pray for the protection of the innocent. We pray for the end of oppression. I think given the situation in Ukraine, this should be our prayer. Lord Jesus, come. Set things right. Bring justice. Bring protection. Bring repentance. We pray for justice on behalf of those being attacked. We, we do pray for the salvation of people like Putin. And we also pray that the Lord would bring about his justice and end it. The Psalms are, are, are actually filled with prayers that the Lord would bring his judgment upon the enemies of God's people. It is biblical for us to pray that the Lord would bring justice, whether that is now or at the end of time. But we pray for these things, knowing that the ultimate hope of the world is Christ's return. We've seen how Christ, in Christ, there is hope for you. There is life after death, a life of sinlessness. We've heard that there is hope for the world, that one day our king will return and establish his kingdom forever. Finally, we see in this passage that there is hope for the people we love. Paul says in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. What Paul is saying here is that when Jesus comes back, if he comes back today, which he might, we don't know but he might. And if he would come back today, Paul is saying that we will be changed and everyone who has passed away before us will be raised and changed too. We do this together as the people of God. There is not a first tier transformation for those who have come before us and a second tier for those who are alive when Jesus comes. No, when Jesus comes, those who are alive then and those who have passed away before in Christ will all be changed. Together, as the whole body of Christ, 
will undergo transformation. That means the church mothers and fathers of generations ago, together with our brothers and sisters across the world today, be they martyrs in the Middle East, missionaries in the villages of India, church planters in secular Europe, or the faithful family in Brazil, everyone who is in Christ will be raised to new life together on that last day. And this is great hope for those that we love. Everyone in this room has felt the pain of death. Some of us have felt it closer to the heart than others. Many of us carry that pain around. And with that pain comes a longing to be united with them again because we love them. A grandparent or a sibling, a friend. There is hope in Christ for those that we love. Hope through Christ that we will be united to them again when the body of Christ is resurrected. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised and we will be changed with them. Christ has swallowed up death through his victory on the cross. There is hope for those that we love. There's also hope not only for those that we love who have passed away, but for those who today are experiencing great pain, disease, handicap, limitations. Through Christ, there is hope also for those that we love today who are living with perishable bodies. In verse 53, Paul says, this perishable body in our glorification will put on the imperishable. That disease and decay and handicaps now will be transformed and that they will be glorified. There is hope for them. But there is also hope for those that we love who are not yet part of the body of Christ. Paul says that this mortal body will put on immortality. It is this hope that even those that we know, that we love, that we interact with on a daily basis who are not yet in Christ, the hope is for them too. That if they would place their faith in Jesus, if they would come to know him, that he died for them, that they too would be transformed on that last day. Their bodies will put on immortality. Maybe it's your neighbor that you see walking the dog. Maybe it's your barista that you see on your way to work. Maybe it's your boss that you interact with at staff meetings. Maybe it's your family member that you see on the weekends. Who is it? Paul says that there is hope for them that we love when we go to them in love and share with them the message of Jesus. That's our hope with this prayer guide, is that we would cultivate this prayer life as a church for those around us that don't yet know Jesus. Cultivate a sense of urgency in which we share the gospel with them and invite them into this relationship with Jesus, that they too would have life 
after death. That's why we're going to be doing this prayer guide together. Everyone around us, friends, is mortal and is going to die. But there is hope for them in Christ. I'm going to conclude with this quote from C.S. Lewis, who talks about this urgency with regard to our neighbors. He says that it may be possible for us to think too much about our own future glory. But it is hardly uh, impossible for us to think too often or too deeply about our neighbor. The load or the weight or the burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily upon my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. He says it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, and then to remember that even the dullest and most uninteresting person that you talk to may one day in glory be a creature, a creature which if you saw it now, you would be so strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or another of those destinations, either into a creature of glory or a creature of nightmares. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all of our friendships, all of our loves, all of our play, all of our politics, there, no, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Friends, this week we will be interacting with immortal beings, beings with bodies and souls who will be resurrected on the last day. Those in Christ will be resurrected unto glory, whereas those apart from Christ will be resurrected into eternal hell. It's not our burden to save our neighbors, but we do carry this joyful remedy of the gospel. It is our charge to offer them an invitation to glory, indiscriminately, liberally, and as lovingly as possible. Friends, those of us who have experienced this journey from death to life. Let us not hold it, but let's give it away. Let's invite others to experience it too. That is the hope that we have for those that we love. Let's pray.